We're going to be in Mark chapter 14 this morning. Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. As you turn there, again, we just want to welcome you. If you're a guest here, maybe you arrived a little bit later. Uh, we just are glad that you could be with us today. If you get a chance during the service or after the service to fill out a Connect card, you can do that physically in front of you with the card in front of you, or you can do it on your phone. Uh, we would just love to connect with you. We would love to find a way that we can bless you and serve you as you uh, visit us today. Mark chapter 14 this morning, verses 3 through 9. Hear the reading of God's word. And while he, Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at table. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, the way of worship, the way of worship. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we could gather today in worship that we have the gift of worship to be able to come in your presence as your people, whether we find ourselves today maybe struggling with faith or alive in our faith, or maybe we're grieving, or maybe we're celebrating. Whatever it is, wherever we find ourselves today, it's a gift to be in your presence. And so, God, we pray as we're in your presence and as your word is, is uh, amongst us speaking to us, God, we pray that you would transform our hearts, transform us into people who have a greater worship for you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. There was a massive asteroid that was discovered in 1852 by an Italian astronomer, and they named it 16 Psyche. And this, this massive asteroid, it, it's about the size of the state of Massachusetts. It, it's, it's very large. And, and this, this asteroid was named 16 Psyche because the Greek word Psyche means soul. And so they named it soul because well, as they examined this, as scientists started to examine this strange asteroid, they realized that it looks like it was actually the beginning of a planet that was beginning to form that never actually formed. And so they're, they're thinking this may have been some kind of soul of the planet, right? It's the core of the planet. And what's even more strange is what Psyche is made out of. So the more they've studied it since it was discovered, they've realized that it's uniquely made out of iron and nickel, almost entirely. And so you could imagine this, this massive asteroid the size of Massachusetts is a huge ball of metal just soaring through the universe, and NASA has actually decided now they're going to take an unmanned mission to Psyche to explore it. Because this, this unique place might give them, you know, 
data on earth and all these things. But here's what some of the research is starting to show. One of the researchers a few years ago tried to uh, estimate how much that metal is worth. Here's the the data. Uh, They they estimated that just the iron alone that Psyche is made out of is worth about 10 quintillion dollars. I had never even heard that word before. That is 19 zeros. 19 zeros. To give you some kind of perspective, to maybe stretch your imagination for a second, that's over 100,000 times more valuable than the entire world economy on earth. Just the iron on Psyche. That that is a ton of money. And and when you think about that, you think about that that is so uh, incomparably valuable, yet it seems so irrelevant. Right? There's this massive ball of iron floating through the universe, and you're thinking, what does that do to my life? And it's worth 100,000 times more than all the money on the planet. But what does that mean for me? See, that tension right there is the tension of worship. That tension right there, here it is, and be honest with me, right? The, 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 the thing we struggle with often is there's this incalculably valuable God out there who's out in the universe, and, and somehow he's so valuable, yet I struggle with how is that relevant to my life? I mean, don't get, don't get too spiritual on I me. Mean, even if you've been following Jesus for a little while, you, you think you've got a relationship with God that, that's healthy and thriving, there are days in your relationship with God. Yeah. Where what you know to be true about him isn't what you feel about him. Right? I mean, let's just be honest. You know that he is a good God. But he doesn't feel good right now. You know that he's he's a wise God. But he doesn't feel wise with what's going on in my family. Right? You know that he's a powerful God. But he doesn't feel powerful with this addiction I'm battling. Right? Whatever it is, you're you're struggling with how do I connect what I'm what I know to be true in my mind to what I'm experiencing in my heart. That's the tension. And maybe today you're you're on the opposite side of that tension. Your your struggle is not as much with your feeling, but even before you can get to your sense of feeling, I, I don't know if I really believe. I, I don't know if I really uh, understand this God that people are talking about. And, and so you've got doubts, you've got fears, you've got questions. And I want to say to you today, if you're, if you're in that place today where you're doubting your faith and you're trying to understand, listen to me, you are first of all welcome here. You're welcome here because the Bible, I don't know if you realize this, the Bible says this in Jude, in the book of Jude, it says to have mercy on those who doubt. Why why would it say that? Because the Bible's honest. The Bible is honest about all of us struggling with doubt. We all go through seasons with doubt. We, We all struggle with how do I make sense of what the Bible is saying and who God is saying he is to me. How does this make sense with my life? It doesn't seem to match up. And so if that's where you are, here's what I'd encourage you. The answer to doubt, the answer to to our struggles on both sides is this, worship. It's connecting our heart and our mind together in worship. How do we do that? That's what I want to look at today. So we're uh, continuing our series in in the Gospel of Mark, and we've been calling it The Way. 
And as we're walking through the Gospel of Mark, which is the story of Jesus' life, we're coming now to the end of Jesus' life on earth, and he is uh, in what we call the Passion Week. This is Jesus' last week on the way to the cross. And so chapter 14 opens up what we've been calling in Mark a sandwich story. Right? You remember that where Mark throughout the gospel has this sandwiching st- technique where he will start a story, interrupt the story with another story, and then come back to the first story. And so chapter 14 is a very similar sandwich. And so the sandwich starts with this argument among the religious leaders, the priests and the scribes, trying to figure out how do we get rid of Jesus? They're starting to plot on how do we kill this one who has challenged our authority. He's challenged all that we know to be true. We have to get rid of him. But we can't get rid of him because right now it's the Passover season. And the Passover season means the city has swelled from 50,000 people to about 250,000 people. And so there's a lot of people. And if you upset the crowds, they're afraid of a riot. Right? And so they kind of put it on pause. And Mark moves the story to another story and enters into the scene this woman. And this unnamed woman worships Jesus in a way that can teach us so much about worship. She connects her heart and her mind in worship. And so that's what I want to look at today. How do we do that? So first, what we got to look at is the value of worship, the value of worship. Look with me at verse 3 as we jump into this story. Look at me at verse 3. It says, And while he, that's Jesus, was born or was at Bethany, In the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, Mark opens the scene, emphasizing the outsiders, right? Follow with me for a second. First, Jesus is at this dinner party in Bethany. And so Jesus said this last week, he's kind of going between Bethany and Jerusalem, Bethany and Jerusalem. And here he leaves the city of Jerusalem where all the action is, right? The holy city. And he goes outside the city to Bethany. So this whole scene is happening literally physically outside of the center of the action. He, he is in the outsider's realm. And then when they get to the dinner, Mark tells us it's at Simon's house. And he tells us on purpose that Simon was called Simon the leper. Now, if you know anything about leprosy in the Bible, leprosy was the uh, ultimate cultural outsider in their society. If you were a leper, you were literally and physically separated from all social interaction. You weren't allowed to be around people. You had to exclude yourself from all things. Now, here's what's fascinating. Mark kind of leaves it vague. He doesn't tell us if Simon was currently a leper or if he was formerly a leper. If Simon is currently a leper, I mean, this scene is even more scandalous, that Jesus would go against all their social requirements and go to a leper's house for dinner when no one was supposed to be around him. But we don't know. But what we do know is, at the very least, he bore the title of their culture's most uh, excluded person. And so the dinner's at Simon's house, and then at the dinner, lastly, there's a woman. And not only is she a woman in a uh, male, you know, male-dominated society of the first century, she is an unnamed woman. In the story, she doesn't even get a name. We're introduced to her as just a woman. 
And she interrupts the meal. She comes into this scene where all these people are gathered around the table, reclining at the table, eating this meal, and she brings her alabaster flask of ointment. And in this society, perfume was stored, this this expensive perfume was stored in this ornate, beautiful alabaster. And they would put it in these containers that were only for one use. You couldn't use it multiple times because to, to open the container meant you had to break the top off. And so once the top was broken, you had to use the whole thing. And often these were so expensive that they were like family heirlooms, right? They were passed down from mother to daughter over generations. In fact, we find out later in the story that this one, they estimate that it's somewhere around 300 denarii. And a denarii was a day's wage. So just imagine a year's worth of wages. That's how much this is. And this lady takes her alabaster box worth about a year's wages. She breaks the top off. She pours it on Jesus and puts the whole thing on him. I mean, just imagine for a moment what that's like. Why in the world would she take this family heirloom that that had all that sentimental value, that had all that monetary value, that, that was saved for some special occasion that they would often use even for their wedding night? Like this, this was the kind of thing you only used for the greatest event you could imagine. And she pours it out on Jesus. Why? It's worship. See, worship, listen, worship is assigning proper value. That's what worship is. Worship is assigning proper value. There was a man um, in 2012 named Dakota Guerin. He was a 19-year-old man uh, in Washington State who was charged with uh, stealing a rare coin collection uh, from a lady that he was doing some work for. Right? He was at this lady's house doing work on her house, and after the work was done, she notices that their family coin collection was missing, and so she reports it to the police. And the police check on him as a suspect, and he says, no, I had nothing to do with it. You have no proof. And they didn't. They had no proof. Until a couple days later, some strange things started getting reported. They, They had apparently, him and his girlfriend, gone out on a date, and they went to the movies, and they bought... Uh, their movie tickets with these rare quarters that were worth somewhere from $5 up to $70 a piece. I mean, these, these were rare coins that were dating all the way back to the 1800s. And then they went from the movie theater down the street to the pizza place and bought some local pizza with, get this, a Liberty Head quarter, which is worth anywhere from $1,000 up to $18,000. They bought pizza. Because he got caught, listen, he got caught because he didn't know the proper value of the coins. He didn't know that these coins were worth much more than 25 cents. Worship is about assigning value. See, the word worship is from actually the Old English, these two words that come together, worth and ship, right? So the word worship literally means to to give worth to something to assign value, to assign worth, right? And so worship is, in its essence, about worth. That's what it is. So that means, listen to me, worship is not about the music. Worship is not about a mood in the room. 
Worship is not about the instruments. Worship is not about microphones. Worship is, is not about a stage. Worship is not about a time on the weekend. Worship is not about uh, what we feel or what we think. Worship is about one thing. Right? Th- those things can, can be uh, helpful. Those, those things can even be encouraged. Right? But, but it's not the essence of worship. The essence of worship, what makes worship worship is this. It's assigning value. It's assigning worth to something. And what that means is worship is going to be costly, right? Worship is going to be costly. If if worship is convenient and not costly, it's probably not worship. I mean, in other words, to put that differently, uh, cheap worship is an oxymoron, right? Worship is going to cost you something for it to be worship. That that's part of the definition of worship. It, it's going to cost you something, right? It's, it's going to cost you possibly your reputation. It, it might cost you your time. It might cost you your money. It might cost you your comfort. It might cost you, uh, you know, some relationship. It might cost you something that's very dear to you. But that's what makes it worship. Worship has to cost you something to be Worship, right? It might cost you your own alabaster box of costly perfume where you have to take it, break it, pour it out. This, this expensive thing that's, that's going to be costly, it's going to be irrational generosity, that is when it becomes worship. But listen, God is worth our worship. I want to be able to say with King David, who said in the Old Testament, he said, I won't sacrifice to the Lord my God offerings that cost me nothing. What he's saying there is, my God isn't worth an offering that costs me nothing. He's worth something that costs me everything. He's worthy of my all. Not not some kind of cheap portion of me, but all of me. Right? He's worthy of more than my mind can comprehend. He's more than, uh, he, more than my heart can sense. He's, he's worthy of more than what my soul can satisfy. Right? And so I'll give him all that I can because he's worthy of all of it. Right? He can have my mind. He can have my heart. He can have my relationships. He can have my money. He can have my marriage. He can have my kids. He can have all of me. All of me because he's worthy of me. That's what worship is. It's assigning value or worth to someone or something. But what happens when we assign improper value? It turns into idolatry. And this is the second point, the idolatry of waste. The idolatry of waste. Look at verses 4 through 6. Look at what it says as it goes on. It says, There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. See, some people at the dinner weren't as excited about what she did. Some people at the dinner, and scholars believe this was probably the disciples, because if you compare the story to the other accounts in the Gospels of this same scene, they're more explicit about the disciples being the ones who speak here. And so most likely in Mark's account, it's the same scene. It's the disciples who are getting angry. 
They look at this woman who's given this extravagant gift, this irrational gift. Uh, I mean, just imagine for a moment, wrap your mind around this. If someone handed you a briefcase with $40,000 cash in it, and then they set it on fire, what would you feel? Like that, that's what's happening here. She takes this, this alabaster box that's worth a year's worth of money and pours it out on the dirt ground. They're thinking, what a waste. Now they try to sound pious and practical. They, they try to sound, you know, we, we could have sold that and given that to the poor, right? We'll get to that in a second. But they, they sound practical. They sound pious. I mean, don't we do that when we're trying to, to really express how we feel? But worst of all, and this is where they really show their hearts, they scold her. They scold. They, they demean her. They devalue her. And when Jesus sees that, I mean, that, that takes it too far for Jesus. Right? Jesus won't let this woman be devalued right in front of her and so, or right in front of him. And so he, he scolds them back, right? Leave her alone. Why are you troubling her? Then he says something completely surprising. She's done something beautiful to me. Right? What you have called wasteful, I'm calling beautiful. And he says why in verse 7. Look at what he says. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Now listen, because some people have misinterpreted this as an excuse to not care for the poor. So pause for a second. Jesus isn't saying that you shouldn't care for the poor. His, his whole life has been an example, a witness of why he has cared for the poor and why he calls us into it. What, what he's actually doing is quoting Deuteronomy 15.11. And if you go back and you read Deuteronomy 15.11, this is what it says in its entirety. For there will never cease to be the poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Right? Jesus is quoting a scripture that actually says, when there's poor among you, you're supposed to open your hand and care for them. So his point is not a contrast between either supporting Jesus or supporting the poor. What Jesus is doing is he's actually contrasting something different. The contrast is between always and not always. You catch it? He's saying, in other words, you, you always have the poor among you, therefore you should be blessing them. But you don't always have me among you. Therefore, you should be blessing me even more. You see it? The poor are among you and you always have opportunity and you should be doing that. But you don't always have me. You should value me even more because right now is your only opportunity. And the woman gets this. Right? The, this unnamed woman, this woman from the margins, she says, I see what's happening here. This man, this opportunity is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and so I'm going to give everything I can. See, he's exposing their idolatry. Their scolding about waste, obviously, right? Obviously devalues this woman. It devalues her gift. But even more than that, it devalues Jesus, who receives the gift. They're saying about Jesus, you're not worthy of this. You're not worthy of that $40,000. 
You're not worthy of this extravagant generosity. Because you know what is worthy? Money. You know what is worthy? Is our comfort. You know what is worthy? Is our reputation that we care about the poor. You're not worthy. Jesus is exposing their hearts right here, saying you've got these two opportunities and this opportunity is right in front of you that you don't normally have. And it shows their idolatry. See, the definition of idolatry is is giving ultimate worth to anything over Jesus. Or to put it in the context of this text here, idolatry calls wasteful what's actually beautiful. Idolatry calls wasteful what's actually beautiful. Beautiful. In 1879, uh, Thomas Edison changed the world when he gave his own modern version of Let There Be Light, right? The Edison Electric Company offered to customers uh, an alternative to gas lights that was cheaper, uh, it, it was faster, it was safer, it was cleaner, all these things. And then obviously the electric light bulb took off, it multiplied, it, it spread widely. And, and, it, and for the first time in human history, People had the opportunity to work not just between sunrise and sunset, but anytime, right? People can work anytime now because they can keep the lights on for a cheaper, more affordable rate. And so work took off. And, and this was Edison's real plan. This was his real desire because if you know anything about his life, Edison thought that sleep was wasteful, completely wasteful. I mean, he was known to work 100 hours plus every week. If you didn't know this, there's 168 hours in every week. He worked over 100 of them every week. And he would often require his employees to come into his sleepless weeks. And so he would do things like holding uh, interviews for jobs at 4 a.m. in the morning. 4 a.m. just to see if they could get up, get to work, and work the whole day. His number one uh, you know, value at his company was endurance. Like if you can work without falling asleep as long as possible, that was what got you promotions. Because he thought productivity was everything. I mean, he said famously in 1914, he said, there's really no reason why men should go to bed at all. At all. Right? Here's why. Because for Edison... Rest, it was the enemy of productivity. It was wasteful. And what it did was his, his idea of waste exposed what he was really worshiping. It was worshiping productivity. See, listen, anything that challenges your idols will be called waste. It'll be waste in your mind because it challenges something deeply in your soul. See, Howard Thurman, the great contemplative activist, he said this. He said, whatever it is that holds so central a place in your reaction to living, that is your God. Let me, let me say that again. Howard Thurman said this. Whatever it is that holds so central a place in your reaction to living, that is your God. What he means is this. If your idol is power then weakness is wasteful. If your idol is money, then spending is wasteful. If your idol is comfort, then suffering is wasteful. Right? If your idol is sexual pleasure, then purity is wasteful. If your idol is success, then failure is wasteful. If your idol is efficiency, 
then people are wasteful. Yeah. People are wasteful. I mean, do, do you hear the pattern there? The, the pattern is whatever I've elevated to the level of ultimate worth in my life, if anything comes into my life that, that threatens that thing in my life, whatever that idol is, that is now considered wasteful because it's taking me from the thing that has the most value. Even Jesus can be wasteful. See, what, what have you elevated in your life up to the level of idolatry? All of us do it on a, on a daily basis. All of us struggle with this. And, and as you begin to see that in your life, as you begin to identify what are those things that are common idols in my life, here's how repentance works. Repentance is always two steps. The first step is this. You've got to tell the truth about your idol. Right? Children are good, but they're not ultimate. Work is good, but it's not ultimate. Marriage is good, but it's not ultimate. Success can be good, but it's not ultimate, right? You have to say the truth about your idol first. You have to say whatever this thing is that stepped into an idol in my life, what's true about it is it's good, but it's not God. And so to be able to repent, I have to be able to identify that in my life. I have to be able to say honestly and truthfully, this thing is not able to live up to my expectations that it's going to be God. It doesn't have the ability to satisfy me. It doesn't have the ability to fulfill me. It doesn't have the ability to keep me going the way God does. Yeah. So you got to tell the truth. Secondly, you got to tell the truth about who Jesus is. You have to remind yourself. You have to remind yourself about who he is. Someone once told me, I don't remember who said this, but, but they said that idols can't be uh, taken away. They, they can't be removed. They have to be replaced. Right? They have to be replaced. What does that mean? That means the moment you take an idol out of your life, let's say you take comfort out of your life, and you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rid of the idol of comfort in my life. If you don't replace that with Jesus, there's going to be another idol that immediately runs into that spot. Because the human heart is designed for worship. We're designed to be creatures that worship something or someone. And so the moment you're not worshiping success, now you're worshiping that guy at your job. And the moment you stop worshiping that guy, now you're worshiping you know, your family member and their, their opinion of you or whatever it is. And you just bounce around from idol to idol until Jesus gets in the middle and you're convinced that he's more beautiful, that he's greater than whatever the idol may be. He has to become more beautiful. He has to become more loving, more successful. He has to become more, more of what your heart desires, more of the satisfaction you're looking for. And so how do we do that? How do we become convinced of his beauty so that we can repent? This is the last point and we'll close. Let's look lastly at the beauty of death. The beauty of death. Jesus goes on in verse 8. Look at what he says. He says, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is fascinating because I don't know if you've noticed as we've been walking through the gospel of Mark, but Mark goes out of his way to highlight Jesus' praise for women. 
He goes out of his way to highlight that, that almost every time Jesus gives his highest honors, his highest praise, it goes to women. Go back and read the Gospel of Mark. I mean, we just read one a few weeks ago where it was another unnamed widow who was at the temple. And this widow is at the temple and she gives her final two coins, right? Which would have been equal to somewhere like her last dollar. And she gives it in worship. And Jesus sees that offering. He compares it to the wealthy people who were giving abundantly. And he says hers is better. In fact, he then says he gives her the giving award. Right? This is the greatest giving you've ever seen. And here again with this woman that's unnamed at the dinner table, he says, I want you to know that what she has done is going to be remembered wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world. I mean, what an honor. Why? See, this is the thing. Remember the outsiders and the insiders that Mark is playing here? All the insiders missed it. The, the, chapter, starts, the chapter starts with the insiders, the, the religious leaders, the, the people who are supposed to know the Bible. They're teaching everyone else the Bible. They see God in the flesh and they think, how can we kill him? How can we get rid of him? Because he is causing problems in our life. He is threatening our idol of power. And they miss him. And then you fast forward to the dinner and you've got all these insiders at the table. You've got the disciples and, and Jesus' close net of people. And when they see this greatest act of worship that Jesus said is going to be heard for out, th throughout the history of the church, they miss it. They call it wasteful. Right? And then yet this woman, from the margins, she gets it. What does she get? Jesus tells us. He says, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. For burial? What, what are you talking about? Jesus is saying, she seems to be the only person who understands that this gospel that's going to be proclaimed is a gospel of a suffering Savior. This gospel that's going to be proclaimed is not about your idols of success and power and wealth and comfort and influence. It's not you getting greater and greater. This gospel that's about to be proclaimed is about the Savior who's going to die for his people. And so she anoints him for burial. She gets it. See, Jesus does the most, uh, the, the most beautiful thing by what seems to be the most wasteful. That's what's so profound about this text. Jesus does the most beautiful work in all human history by what seems to be the most wasteful way. See, right after the dinner, Judas, Isco Judas Iscariot, he leaves the dinner table. He goes to the religious leaders who were just plotting, right? This is where the sandwich ends. It comes back to these guys. Judas goes out, he talks to these religious leaders, and he comes with the intention to, to betray Jesus. And Mark goes out of his way to remind us that Judas was one of the twelve. It's right there in the text. Mark is setting up this contrast between the outsiders who don't get it and the insiders, or sorry, the outsiders who get it and the insiders who should have got it, but they didn't. Here's Judas who's been walking with Jesus for three years. He, of all people, should know the value and worth of Jesus. And yet, like us, just like us, his idols blinded him, and he didn't see Jesus' value. 
And Judas goes to the, to the high priest, and, and they go over to Caiaphas' house, the high priest, and he tells them about Jesus and turns Jesus in. And in one of the, the most uh, disturbing lines in the Bible, it says that they were glad at his betrayal. Here's these men who know the scriptures, and when they hear that someone's going to betray Jesus, they're joyful. And Judas, famously, for 30 pieces of silver, values Jesus at 30 pieces of silver. Right? He turns over the Son of God to be crucified for 30 pieces of silver. And they nail him to a cross. Jesus, listen, Jesus, like the alabaster box, would be broken for us once and for all. He would be poured out for us. His blood would be more costly than any perfume. It would be the blood of righteousness. It would be the blood of justice. It would be the blood of mercy. It would be his blood, right? Poured out for sinners like us that pays for all our sins, all the sins of our past, all the sins of our shame in the present, all of our future failures. The infinite debt of our sin is paid by the infinite God in human flesh, which makes him worthy, worthy. Right? What seems so wasteful, so foolish that God would come in human flesh and give his own life for us, how does that make sense? It only makes sense if you know the value of Jesus. Right? The cross is foolishness to the world, but to us it is the wisdom of God that God in his power, God in his wisdom would say, I want to give my life for you. Yeah. See, the cross speaks of a God whose beauty is worthy of our worship. The beauty of his radical goodness, the beauty of his tender patience, the beauty of his full obedience, the beauty of his loving kindness, the beauty of his faithful presence. Jesus is the beautiful one. He's the beautiful one who's worthy of all of our worship. And so do you need him to liberate you from your idols? Do you need him to set you free, to worship him freely? That's what he's inviting us into. Remember, it takes two things. We have to own up to our idols, confess the truth about them. But then the second part is the good news. You come to Jesus and you find one who is more beautiful than anything else you've ever worshipped. You find one who can truly satisfy, one who's worth all that you can offer. Right? This, this woman who, who offered everything she had, she knew it. She knew that Jesus was greater. Jesus could satisfy. Jesus could fulfill. Jesus is one worthy. Because listen, out of all the idols we worship, not a single one of them died for you. Not a single one of them was raised for you. Not a single one of them's coming back for you. Only Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the beautiful one. You are the one that we lift up in our hearts, in our minds, in our words, in our actions. Lord Jesus, you have all of us. You have all of us. You, you are our Lord and Savior. You, you are our master. You're the one who's worthy of our whole life because of who you are and because of what you've done. And so, Lord, I pray for our, our church today as we... Uh, move to the table now. We, we think about what you have offered in, 
in your life, in your death, in your resurrection, this table represents your beauty. This table is the gathering of, of your people who are unworthy, your people who don't value you the way that we should, who, who don't worship you the way that we should. We, we are caught up in so many different idols that grab our hearts and our attentions and our desires, and yet you invite us to the table. You invited Judas to the table. And we, like him, will probably get up from this table and betray you once more. And yet you love us. You love us. And you're worthy of our love towards you. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would work the good news of the gospel deep into our souls. That you'd renew us and strengthen us, transform us, make us new. We pray in your name.